For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark. The Son of Man is a messianic title. And it teaches us that Jesus is the ideal man. He's the perfect man who one day will restore God's kingdom over the earth. But the question we have is what kind of Messiah is Jesus going to be? And Jesus tells us this is the kind of Messiah he will be. He will be one who serves by giving his life a ransom for many. He is a Messiah who will die before he will rule. He will die willingly because he's going to give. He will die sacrificially because he will be a ransom, a payment to God. And he will die substitutionally because he will die for many, for our benefit on our behalf. So Mark 10.45 summarizes the whole theology about Jesus the Messiah in the whole Gospel of Mark. But it does more. Jesus uttered these words after teaching the disciples on servanthood. He was saying to them, I set a pattern for you. As I came to serve, so you also should serve. But what does it take for us to be a servant? That's what Jesus is going to teach us this morning. We are coming to this section in Mark chapter 10 that I'm simply entitling, Improving Your Serve. And as Jesus teaches the disciples, he teaches us, what does it really mean for us to be a real servant? Let's take a moment and ask the Lord to guide us. Blessed Savior, Thank you for the pattern that you have set for us. Thank you that your very coming to this earth to be the Son of Man, to give your life as a ransom for many, not only is the essence of what it meant for you to be Messiah, but is the pattern for us. And Lord Jesus, today we confess that we are so unlike this. We are very much like what we will see in the disciples today. And so we need to be led once again to your perfect example that you set before us, that we might represent you as your servants in this world. Guide us now as we learn from you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's open our Bibles, shall we, to Mark chapter 10. And let's begin by looking at verses 32 to 34. And I want you to notice what Jesus has to say to us as he speaks to the disciples and speaks to us. Mark 32, and listen to what our Lord says. And as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. 
saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now here, as Jesus talks about his own life and upcoming death, he is clearly telling us something we need to understand, first of all, about true servanthood, and that is servants suffer. Would you have expected that we would have begun here? That this is the place where Jesus starts helping us understand his own model of servanthood. This is the third prediction of Jesus' passion. We've had one in chapter 8, now one in chapter 9, and now today a third one in chapter 10. And Jesus knew that for him to come and be the Son of Man who would not be served, but rather would serve, that it meant death on a cross. Now what Bible students often talk about is the six stages of the cross, and Jesus very clearly here predicted all six. Notice what he says is going to happen to him in verses 33 and 34. He would be portrayed, sentenced to death, handed to the Gentiles, mocked, spit upon, and flogged, executed, and then finally resurrected. Do you know what is new about this third prediction in chapter 10, stages 3 and 4? This is the first time that Jesus had revealed he would be handed over to the Gentiles, he would be mocked, spit upon, and flogged. What this emphasizes is the total and complete humiliation that Jesus would experience. Now, it was absolutely inconceivable to the Jews that they would reject their own Messiah and then hand him over to the despised Gentiles. This is the reason why this totally went over the heads of the disciples. They could not in their wildest dreams imagine that the Messiah, the Lord of glory, would be treated in this way. And for this to occur shows how low Jesus would go in his humiliation. He would be rejected by his own people, handed over to their enemies, brutalized and scorned as a criminal. It's very interesting, as you look at the three predictions that Jesus gave, denote the progress. In chapter 8, verse 31, the key is must, and there we see the necessity of the cross. In chapter 9, verse 31, the key word is will, and there we see the certainty of the cross. Now here in chapter 10, verse 33, the key words are mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed, and there we see the cruelty of the cross. For Jesus to serve meant that he would suffer. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us. 
Jesus said to follow him and to serve him, we would pay a price. There is a cost involved. There are sacrifices that have to be made if we are to put Jesus Christ first in our life. I remember when I first went off to Moody Bible Institute to study to be a pastor, and Warren Wearsby was the pastor down at Moody Church, and and we would go down to listen to him on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. Whenever he would talk about young men going into the ministry, this is what he would say, if you can do anything else and be happy, stay out of the ministry. That's what he would say. And, of course, I'm sitting there scratching my head. Why would he say that? Everybody else was patting me on the back. But why would he say that? And, of course, you know. There are very many trials to bear and hardships to face in the ministry. And only those who know they are called of God will ultimately have the strength to go on. Uh, There have been some surveys done that uh, describe the struggles of what it is like to be a pastor. Uh, This past week I refreshed myself on some of those surveys. Let me just share some of them with you this morning. 50% of the pastors surveyed had considered leaving their ministries within the last three months. 40% reported a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 70% said they do not have someone they consider a close friend. 90% of the pastors surveyed felt inadequately trained to cope with the ministry demands of the job. And 70% have a lower self-image after they have pastored than when they started. Another survey indicated 75% report they've had a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. And as I refresh myself over those struggles that are typical of the ministry, I thought to myself, you know what? These are not just struggles that are related to uh, the professional pastor, But there are the struggles that anyone who serves is called to bear. Think about what it meant for Jesus to leave heaven's glory and to come to this earth to pay a ransom for many. He took on problems that he never would have had. And if you follow Jesus and serve him, you'll take on problems that you never would have had. He received criticism that he didn't deserve. And if you follow Jesus, there will be criticism that you don't deserve. And he experienced disappointments that he felt very, very deeply. Think of him preparing to go to the cross, and we're going to see in just a moment his disciples were all concerned about who's going to be number one. And Jesus felt that severely. See, all those things... They're the lot of those who serve. Servants suffer. Servants suffer. Notice as Jesus continues, he tells us that servants are selfless. Servants are selfless. Look at verse 35. 
And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. How many of you have found that works out well? And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Do you ever sometimes just have to stop in the middle of the Word of God and shake your head? And notice what Jesus said. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now back in chapter 8, Jesus had talked about his coming glory. The closer he got to Jerusalem on this journey in the shadow of the cross, the more James and John, and we read the other ten, began to think that that glory was imminent. And so you can imagine what was happening. Their minds began to whirl in this direction. We are going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to exert his power. He will defeat our enemies. He will seize the throne. And he will begin the long-awaited kingdom of God. You know what these disciples had in their eyes? Stars. They had stars in their eyes. And they did what young, aspiring opportunists do. They seized the opportunity. James and John said, here is our chance. They had the good old American approach to success. If you're going to beat the competition, you got to get a jump on them. They believed in their minds, nice guys finish last. It's a dog-eat-dog world. If we don't get to Jesus first, someone else will get the jobs that we want. And so they asked if they could sit on Jesus' right hand... That's the right hand here for you folks. And his left hand. Do you know in royal courts of the day, those were the highest places of prestige and authority? In our day, they would have said, can we be vice president? Can we be secretary of state in your new government? And you'll notice how Jesus answers. He uses two figurative expressions that are absolutely critical for us to understand what he was trying to teach them. The first one is the cup. He says in verse 39, the cup that I drink will you drink. If you were to look in the Old Testament, you would discover that the cup was a common figure for the wrath of God's judgment poured out on human sin. To share someone's cup meant you shared their fate. 
Jesus was going to drink the cup of God's punishment upon human sin. He would bear the divine wrath of God for sins in the place of the guilty. Then he uses a second figure. He says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And in the Old Testament, this figure of submersion sometimes was used of calamity in one's life. You remember when Jonah got taken in the belly of the great fish down to the bottom of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, and he talked about all of your waves rolling over me, all of your breakers coming over me. He said, my head was wrapped in seaweed. It was often a figure of coming under some calamity. And Jesus' calamity was to be overwhelmed with the sufferings that would go along with his death for sin. He was to be immersed, baptized into those sufferings by his Father. By the way, what should have been the answer to uh, the question that Jesus gave by James and John? How many of you think the answer should have been, we are able, we are able? The answer should have been, no, no, we cannot join you on the cross. No way could the disciples participate in Jesus' atoning death for the sins of the world. But when they foolishly said, we are able, Jesus went on to say, there was a way. Did you notice what he said? He said, you will be able to drink this cup that I've drunk, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I am going to experience. What Jesus was saying to them is they would suffer. They would give their lives in suffering just as he selflessly had. It is interesting if you look at the history of what happened to the twelve apostles, how all of them suffered and were martyred, came to very difficult deaths as they followed Jesus. Particularly, he was talking to James and John, and, and look what happened to them. James was the first martyr for Jesus. He was beheaded by Herod Agrippa I. And John, though he lived to old age, may well have lived into his 90s, he was exiled and imprisoned on a barren rocky island where he ultimately died of old age. And what Jesus was teaching his disciples was this that sharing in his glory also meant sharing in his sufferings. What he was trying to tell them is this, before you're going to receive, you are going to give. Before you ever receive, you are going to give. By the way, did you notice how the other ten, when they heard it, verse 41 says, they became indignant. 
They had the same selfish ambitions, the same rivalry, the same desire for prominence. They just didn't express it as clearly as James and John did. And what was Jesus saying? You got it all wrong. If you're going to follow and serve me, you are called to a life of selflessness. A number of years ago, I I read or heard this true story about a a man in an airport. I was just recently in an airport as I was traveling back from Idaho. And so I know sometimes you get caught in these long lines. And this man uh, decided, uh, I'm going to cut in front of line and get waited on. And so that's what he did. And the clerk said to him, "Um, excuse me, sir, but you need to wait at the end of the line just like everybody else. You know what he said? He demanded to her, do you know who I am? She said, just a moment. She picked up the intercom and she uh, announced to the airport There's a man here at the front desk who does not know who he is. (laughs) If someone could come and identify him, it would really help the situation. Red-faced and angry, he stomped to the back of the line, while everyone in line burst out laughing. Don't you love it when people like us get their comeuppance? Do you know what Pastor Robert Rain said? I'm like James and John. Lord, I seize up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. And Pastor Rains is right, isn't he? We are like them too much. What do we learn here? Real servants are selfless. They are not stuck on themselves. They know who they are. They are secure in the Lord. Real servants don't need to impress. They do not need to be important. They don't need their egos stroked. They don't need to engage in power struggles in order to gain control. They don't have to be first to win or to have their opinions come out on top. And they aren't concerned about who gets the credit or who has what title or what position. Somebody saw a very interesting sign one day. And the sign read this. 
There's no limit to the good that a person can do if he or she doesn't care who gets the credit. And all God's people said, yeah. That's a lesson we all need to learn. And Jesus was teaching us that if you're going to be a servant, you're going to suffer. And if you're going to be a servant, you're going to have to learn to say no to all the ambitions that are self-centered in your heart and to be selfless. And then finally, number three, servants serve. Servants serve. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, by the way, in the Bible, whenever Jesus calls his disciples, there's a critical lesson that is being taught. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now James and John and the other ten all wanted to be appointed to positions of leadership. They wanted to lead. And Jesus now takes this opportunity to contrast two styles of leadership. There is the leadership style of the Gentile rulers. Do you know these twelve disciples would have despised the Gentile rulers? And the Gentile rulers despised submission to service and sacrifice. In fact, humility was the least of all virtues. You know a little bit about Roman history. Roman rulers thought of themselves in grandiose terms. They exploited their subjects. As Jesus describes it here, their standard of greatness was power. And here's the question that every Gentile or Roman ruler would have. How many people do I control? What army of servants are at my beck and my call? How many people can I impose my will on and my decisions on? Do you know a man by the name of Galba became one of the Roman emperors? When he was crowned emperor, this is what he said. Now that I've become emperor, I can do what I want to whomever I want. That was their view of leadership. But did you notice what Jesus does? He juxtaposes two words that are parallel here that teach us a very critical point. Notice those two words. In verse 43, he uses the word servant. And in verse 44, he uses the word slave. 
Those two words juxtaposed against one another teach us what it means to be a true servant. Let me give you the meaning of those words. The word slave was a bond slave, one that is in permanent relation of of servitude to another, his will or her will, altogether swallowed up in the will of the other person. So that if you were a slave, you essentially had no will of your own, it was all swallowed up in the will of the person you were a slave to. And the word servant, you know that word. It was a table waiter. It was the person who waited on the needs of others. What's the main point of these two words? Look again what Jesus is saying. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What's the point? The activities of a servant are those whose main interests are not themselves, but the interests of others. That's the point of these two words. If we are a servant, our main interests are not ourselves, but the interests of others and the interests of our Lord as he is working in the lives of others. Do you know what the irony in this whole passage is? The disciples despised their Roman rulers. Yet they were just like them. Isn't that the irony here? Here they're following Jesus. They think when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to exert his power. He's going to defeat these despised rulers of ours. He's going to take the throne, usher in the kingdom. We're going to be exalted. And the very ones they despised, they were just like. And Jesus taught a different model, didn't he? Jesus taught his model of leadership was the servant leader. I think there are a number of conclusions that we can draw from all of this. Conclusions that we so much need in our culture today. If you are like me watching the sad spectacle that we have seen in our nation's capital this last week, you recognize how far we are from Jesus and how much we are, sadly, like these disciples were. And so we need to ask the Lord to teach us a whole different mindset, a whole different outlook. And this morning as we bring this message to a conclusion, let's talk about what Jesus was really teaching us about greatness and leadership. Let me just give you a few conclusions and and ask you just to read them with me this morning. 
Number one, would you read it with me? Only by humble service do we become great. Those words are chosen very carefully. Only, only by humble service do we become great in God's eyes. Number two, join me. We are measured not by who is serving us, but by whom we are serving. Number three, join me. The true test isn't, what service can I extract, but what service can I give? Number four, real leaders serve cheerfully, faithfully, and sacrificially, no matter the cost. Boy, there's a lot to evaluate our lives on, isn't it? When there is a cost... Am I still serving cheerfully, faithfully, and sacrificially? That's a real leader. And finally, number five, join me. Positions are not to rule others, but they are to serve them. If God in his grace has allowed you to have a position of authority, prominence, people looking up to you. There is one reason why he has given you that position. It is not so that you can rule them, but it is rather so that you can serve them. And Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think of it. God's man, the ideal man, the perfect man, the man who's going to restore God's kingdom to this earth, That man came not to be served, but he came to serve. He came not to receive, he came to give. And he became the ransom, God's payment for you and me. Let's take a moment, shall we, and let's ask the Lord to mold us and make us after him. Father, there are times when we feel like we should just repent in the dust 
and cover our heads with ashes and put on sackcloth. Because we see ourselves so often opposite of our Lord Jesus. And the very self-centeredness, rivalry, desire for prominence and authority and rulership that characterize the unwitting twelve too often characterizes us. And Lord, particularly when there is a cost to pay, when there is a sacrifice, some suffering, some loss of personal prestige or having my way, that is then that we complain and criticize, become divisive, and all of our self-centeredness comes out on display, not only for everyone else to see, but more importantly for you to see. It amazes us, Savior, that Jesus was one week from the cross and his disciples, though he had taught them so many times these lessons, had completely misunderstood. Father, how how different our marriages would be, how different our families would be, how different our church would be, if we embrace that following Jesus means I will suffer, I will be selfless, and I will serve. How that would transform everything. Lord, today we pray for our country. The sad spectacle that we have witnessed in our nation's capital is an indictment of how far we have fallen from you. And we know that we need the work of Jesus Christ in the hearts of our nation. and We need his work first and foremost in our hearts. And we pray that as we have seen our Lord's wonderful teaching that our lives would be changed. And Lord, it it will become the way it should be. That when people wonder how is life to be lived, how are relationships to be conducted, what does it mean to lead and to follow, that they would look to the church first of all and say, there's a group of people that has figured it out. And we want to be like them. And so, Lord, in this very dark day, thank you that we have the chance to be a very bright light. That as Jesus shined the light all the way to the cross, so may we shine the light all the way 
until he calls us home. Bless us now as we gather around his table. What a great illustration of his life verse. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And we are partakers of that life. We love you, Lord, today for it. For Jesus' sake. Amen.